Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Sonic has something delicious for you. Hey, announcer guy, that's your cue. Try the new Sonic Steak and Bacon Grilled Cheese. Savory steak mixed with grilled onions topped with crispy bacon and melty American cheese, plus creamy mayo and tangy barbecue sauce. Or try it spicy with zesty cheese sauce and jalapenos. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm definitely craving that previously mentioned thing. Sonic Steak and Bacon Grilled Cheese. Sonic. Limited time only of participating Sonic drive-ins. Hi, this is Glenn Wexler, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once, diggers? Hey, hey, Christian Swain, Rock and Roll Archaeology with you, and class is in session. How's everybody doing? Uh, having a good time? Good week? Ready for the upcoming holidays? Yeah, me neither. Although, I just listened to Eric Idle of Monty Python fame sing Fuck Christmas, and therefore, I feel a little better. It's good therapy for a stressful season. So, if it gets to be too much diggers, you two go have a listen. Uh, besides, it's the 50th anniversary of the Flying Circus, so you should indulge just to pay homage uh, to the British troupe that changed comedy. Uh, and in the spirit of those Oxbridge-educated absurdists, we have a new podcast to share with you all. From the UK, Rock's Backpages podcast has joined the Pantheon Network. Uh, this is our first show to join us from across the pond, and we could not be more excited. Having a podcast produced where so many great rock and roll was produced is perfect for us. If you are unfamiliar with Rock's Back Pages, the website, it boasts over 40,000 classic articles on artists from Aaliyah to ZZ Top by the finest music writers of the last 60 years. That is extraordinary. And let me tell you, we personally have been using this service for several years as we research and write the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. So, Rock's Back Pages podcast is hosted by Mark Pringle and Barney Hoskins, <laughs> who reel in the years and riff on all that's new this week in the world's biggest library of music journalism. Definitive interviews with legends of the last 60 years by the pop press's 
greatest writers, and much, much more. Every week, Mark and Barney pick their highlights from the 50-plus new pieces added to the database and present an exclusive excerpt from the week's new audio interviews produced and uh, regularly graced by Jasper, Morrison Bowie. So, who are Mark, Barney, and Jasper? Well, let's start with Barney. Barney Hoskins is the editorial director and is a writer and editor for over 30 years. RBP co-founder Hoskins is also the author of many books, including Hotel California, Singer-Songwriters and Cocaine Cowboys in the L.A. Canyons, The Tom Waits Biography, Low Side of the Road, Trampled Underfoot, An Oral History of Led Zeppelin, and Small Town Talk, A History of the Music Scene in Woodstock and Bearsville. A former U.S. correspondent for Mojo, Hoskins has contributed to Vogue, GQ, Rolling Stone, Spin, Harper's Bazaar, Uncut, and many other titles. Mark Pringle, chief archivist and production director, is a co-founder of Rock's Back Pages. Mark has a checkered past, including a stint as a musician with mid-80s retro soul outfit Hot House, graphic designer, portrait photographer. Well, in 2003, he curated Yes, Yes, Y'all, an ex exhibition about the first decade of hip-hop, 72 to 83. And these days, when he's not covered in 50-year-old newsprint, it never dries, you know, uh, he now plays free rock with drummer pal Tom Fenner. And producer Jasper Morrison Bowie has written about jazz, funk, and electronic music for Undercity Lights and the Playground. While studying philosophy at University College, London, Jasper hosted a radio show, Making Waves, which ran for three years. Uh, as a saxophonist and pianist, Jasper has played in venues including the Adelphi Theater, the Bishopsgate Institute, and Camden People's Theater. In 2015, he held a residency at Treadwell's Restaurant in Covent Garden, playing jazz and freely improvised music. He has also spent some time behind the decks at clubs in Oxford and London. So let's welcome Barney, Mark, and Jasper to the Pantheon family. Please find Rock's Back Pages podcast at pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to all your great music podcasts. Okay, that's it. Let's get to our guest today. Sometimes I give myself the creeps. Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me. It all keeps setting up. I think I'm cracking up. Am I just paranoid? Am I just stuck? Oh man, I love these guys. Maybe the last great rock and roll band to rule the charts. American Idiot, released in 2004, was the last great rock and roll album to hit the number one slot on Billboard's Top 200 and <laughs> number one in 19 other countries. It spawned five singles, a giant tour, and even a Broadway play based on its concept album storyline. 
uh, I'll, I'll talk a little more about all of that uh, after the interview and the outro. Uh, but right now, let's introduce you to our guest. Um, to many of you, he doesn't really need an intro. Uh, Bob Gruen is one of the great rock and roll photographers of the rock and roll era. And that all starts with being at the right place at the right time. And that was in 1970 when, as an amateur, he took a series of photos during an Ike and Tina Turner show at the Honkamonka Club. If you're unfamiliar with the shot, it's a series of five photos taken during a strobe effect where Tina is in motion. That just absolutely captures, in a single frame, all the excitement and high energy of a Tina Turner performance. It's one of those extraordinary shots that can change a person's life, and this one certainly changed Bob's. And Bob has been filming rock and roll ever since. Uh, Led Zeppelin in front of their airplane starship, yeah, Bob Gruen, John Lennon uh, in the New York uh, City shirt with sunglasses, Bob Gruen, Kiss in Suits, Bob Gruen, Sid Vicious covered in blood, Bob Gruen, The Clash on top of Rockefeller Center, again, Bob Gruen. And that shot of The Clash was recreated when Bob took Billy Joe, Mike Durnt, and Trey Cool to the exact same location in 2009, this time in full color. And that gets us to today. Bob has a new picture book out called Green Day Photographs by Bob Gruen, a worthy Christmas gift for any rock and roll fan. Now, Bob has been shooting the Three Beasts from Oakland since Dookie arrived 25 years ago. Yeah, 25 years ago. So there are a lot of pictures from every era of the band. And surprisingly, they are the only artist that allows Bob and most other photographers today on stage uh, and, sh and shoot the entire show. Yeah, uh, a great, like Bob Gruen, in, in most cases, gets herded in for the first three songs and then herded out before the band really gets going and, and missing anything remotely improvisational that might make a shot uh, like uh, some of the ones that I just called out. Green Day is the last band that allows Bob that access, and he loves them for it. Uh, he gets it, and they get it. Unfortunately, most others don't. And so, like many things in the rock and roll age, it's past. Okay, Bob discusses this and a whole lot more. So let's get to it. I give you rock and roll icon photographer, Bob Gruen. I walk a lonely road, the only one that I have ever known. Don't know where it goes, but it's only me. Welcome to Deeper Digs and Rock, Bob Gruen. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks. Okay, so as a student of the game and an active participant through about 50 years of its history, 
Um, your latest book is an interesting subject because I kind of think they are the last great rock and roll band. Um, do you agree <laughs> <Hope> that <not. laughs> uh, there, there has not, you know, there has not been a number one rock and roll album since uh, American Idiot in 2006. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it, it does. It's not looking good for the good guys. Wow. If you, if you I didn't know that. About that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so uh, I guess, oh, well, here's here's the question. Is Green Day uh, the last of the great rock and roll bands? Uh, well, they are to me in a sense, but I hope there's still going to be others. Um, I mean, I recently saw another band uh, from Ireland, a band called The Stripes, that were, uh, I thought, going to be you know, my hope for the future, uh, but they did break up. Uh, they were together 12 years because uh, they got together when they were six. <laughs> Um, but yeah, they've broken up. So, but I, I see other people still interested in rock and roll. So, uh, I'm hoping that there's going to be another band. But certainly for today, uh, Green Day is the best example of rock and roll that you got out there. Yeah, that are still out active, still putting records together, still trying to make a dent in the uh, music universe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, we'll get back to the the, the Dukies of Berkeley in a minute. But, mm-hmm. but let's get to the the Bob Gruen story. So, you know, tell mm-hmm. us about when you woke up and realized that you had inadvertently joined the biggest circuses uh, in the world by being a rock and roll photographer. Um, I wouldn't say I woke up one day and discovered that. It was more gradual than that. Um, basically, I dropped out of high school. I mean, I dropped out of college, um, you know, in the 60s. I graduated high school, but... Um, there was the idea of turn on, tune in, and drop out. And so yeah. I lived with a rock and roll band. Timothy Leary, yes. Um, you know, and my my version of dropping out was uh, living with a rock and roll band, which turned out that I was actually dropping in because when they got a record deal, and the record company used my pictures and started hiring me for to take pictures of other bands. And pretty soon, that's what I was doing. Uh, my intention had been not to work at all. But then before I knew it, I was working every day, but I was having fun because I was taking pictures of rock and roll bands. I was going to great shows and uh, eventually, you know, traveling around uh, the world with them. But I don't know if there was a moment when I woke up and went, hey, I'm a rock and roll photographer. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe that uh, the first time you, you, you got handed that first class uh, uh, ticket, uh, you know, went, oh, geez, I guess this is a real profession. I'm, I'm, I'm now a rock and roll photographer, but, but yeah, of course it's, it's rarely, uh, you know, photographers don't get too many first class tickets, <laughs> <laughs> by the way. Oh, that's well, well then, uh, that's do get bad. That's expenses, but I wouldn't call it first class. You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and well, although we'll, we'll talk about a famous plane that you shot here. Uh, in, yeah. In that bit. was pretty first class. <laughs> first class. I, I would say so, uh, um, you know, I, I always ask oh, about private class. <laughs> yeah, I always ask about growing up uh, and mm-hmm. the importance of music in the house. Was was that a big thing for you and in, in, in your family? No, uh, my parents were attorneys. Um, as I recall, my dad had one record that he bought in Bermuda by a band called the Talbot Brothers, which I actually love. It's a Calypso record, um, but they were not. Um, musically tuned they didn't play music in the background uh when my dad got a when we got a new house when i was five years old my dad actually had a very nice stereo built in and i don't remember him ever turning it on 
Oh wow! Um, really? I, I so, used it. I used it a lot. Yeah. So okay. So so how did you discover? I, I I'm gonna bet you. You see, you were born in '45, so I, I I'm gonna right. bet that uh, you caught Elvis on uh, on. Uh, uh, I saw Elvis. T uh, I was laying on my dad's stomach uh, in 1956, watching Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Ed show. Ed Sullivan, yeah, yeah. Um, that was groundbreaking. That was really inspiring for me. Um, and actually, when I went to college, uh, the first the year that I was there, I went out to dinner with friends. The first time I went to a nice hotel restaurant, although it wasn't a nice hotel, it was in southern Illinois, and it was pretty seedy. Um, but we walked in the lobby, and on the far side of the lobby, there was some screaming and yelling, and I went over to see what it was, and it was Ed Sullivan, uh, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And so that came to me as a complete surprise. I remember standing in the lobby kind of shocked, looking at the TV, going, what is going on there, you know? Really? So, so you'd seen mm -hmm. Elvis uh, on mm -hmm. Ed Sullivan uh, in 56, and that, that made an impression on you. Um, but you just didn't expect the Beatles on February 9th, uh, 1964. No, I was uh, in the fields of Southern Illinois. We didn't get a lot of new uh, influences out there. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I guess not. Is that where you grew up in Southern Illinois? No, no, I grew up on Long Island. I yeah, yeah, I thought Illinois. you were a New Yorker. Okay. Oh, you went to mm -hmm. school there in Southern Illinois. Okay. Right. All right. And uh, so you were you were unprepared for the onslaught of the British invasion. Uh, then, huh? mm -hmm. But uh, but did that, well, I, I take it that rock your world? Yeah, I mean, unprepared in the sense I didn't know what was coming, but very prepared and perfect in that I was 18 at the time. And so um, it caught me at the perfect age of being uh, vulnerable to inspiration. Right, 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 right. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your early experience as a, as a photographer. I, I think you, you learned this from your mom. Is that right? My mom's hobby was photography, and she used to develop and print her own pictures. So when I was literally oh, so you guys five years old, had a dark room at home. Yeah, my mom okay. had her own dark room. And when I was five years old, she took me in a dark room and showed me how to develop and print in the dark. And I immediately took a liking to it. And when I was eight years old, my parents got me my first camera, uh, a Kodak Brownie Hawkeye, and I started taking pictures of the family, which I think is good training for a. Uh, rock and roll photographer because you got to get six dysfunctional people looking good for a 60th of a second. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, not an easy task. And so <laughs> I practiced on my family for a few years before I got into rock and roll. Oh, so you, you were always uh, on the lookout for uh, that, that one moment when everybody was smiling and happy. Right. Right. <laughs> All right. So uh, so your mom taught you uh, uh, the basics. Uh, what, what was her style? What was what was her muse? Sorry, I'm having a sandwich here. Um, my mom didn't really approach photography as an art form uh, in that sense. She was really just trying to, I think, save money on family pictures. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I mean, uh, by the time you, you know, go through the process and get a dark room and everything like that, I think it'd be cheaper to go to, to uh, uh, Mills Photography, wouldn't you say? No, well, she probably enjoyed doing it as well. Yeah. Yeah. But um, they didn't have, you know, photo stands back then. You had to go to a camera store, and uh, it was a bit more expensive to get things processed. Um, but it wasn't even that. I mean, I think she enjoyed doing it. She enjoyed making things. Um, it's just I don't remember her ever talking about a photo she was proud of. Oh, really? Mm. Really? And there wasn't one, like, framed and 
put up in, no. in, in the you know in the, the the family no. room that made everybody go wow mom you took a great one on no her her approach to photography is really much more about family snapshots okay all right all right so well then your entire life must have been photographed uh well she wasn't that into it <laughs> <laughs> so it was more like when we dressed up for an occasion or anything you know then um, she'd go grab the camera she the wasn't ground. a photographer she was very very busy as an attorney yeah yeah okay. photography was just like a side thing she did you know once in a while but. yeah yeah so uh, did did you? She wasn't meet? a member of any photography clubs. Uh huh. Oh, she was just a personal thing that she liked to do. Yeah. So it wasn't like it she was out shooting birds or anything like that. So. No. Yeah. No, like she wouldn't go out for an afternoon to photograph things. Right, 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 right. It was just like if we were at an event, she was the one who brought a camera to take pictures of all of us. Okay, I get it. I get it. Now, what about yourself? Um, so a five, you're 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 learning, uh, you know how to. Uh, shoot uh, pictures, probably develop mm -hmm. film in the dark room. Did you take right. to it immediately and just? I yes. mean, this, this is this is this is your thing. I mean, this is your, yeah. your life. No, work. I, I liked it immediately. I liked developing the pictures. I like taking the pictures. Um, so by the time I was eight, they gave me my own camera, and I started taking pictures with that. Uh, when I was eleven, I was taking pictures in summer camp of the the campers put on a little play. I think it was Oklahoma. Actually, I kind of remember. Mm -hmm. um, and I was down front taking pictures of the play rather than sitting in the audience with the rest of the campers. Oh, and I sent seat. that film home to my mother, and she developed it and made prints to sent them back to me, and I sold them to the campers. Oh, there, so that was your first paying gig, right? Oh. So basically, I'm doing the same kind of thing now, but my mom doesn't <laughs> develop it for me anymore. Right, right. So you uh, did you fall in love with the whole? idea of uh you know oklahoma's big production uh you know there's all these people on there there's uh there's immediate uh reaction applause mm. love and all that did you, did you get the whole whole thing uh, uh there with that experience um probably i've always liked spectacle and mm. I've, I, I would have to say the show and tell was my favorite subject that i like to see exciting things and tell people about them Oh, and that's okay. what I do with pictures. That is what exactly what you do. Okay, so what what was your 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 first live rock and roll experience uh, outside? I mean, we know we know obviously the Elvis thing at eleven, but I, I, I well, I wouldn't necessarily say rock and roll, but the first concert that I remember going to that really influenced me and inspired me was when I was about thirteen. I saw Pete Seeger. Oh, okay. And uh, he was really saying something in the sense that he was yeah. talking about peace, about love, about mm -hmm. fair equality, uh, you know, fair treatment of workers, uh, equal rights, equal housing. Uh, and he got the audience to sing along in three-part harmony, and he made it a lot of fun. And it was one of the best concerts I've ever seen. And it was, uh, it turned out to be controversial. Like within a few days, there was letters to the editors of the local newspapers uh, condemning them for yeah, allowing yeah. a communist to yeah. sing in the public school auditorium. And uh, and I was very surprised because Pete Seeger's message was one of the best I'd ever seen. It was what I had been taught in religious classes. Um, and yet it was, he made it fun. And the fact that they were saying he was a communist, and what I first thought was, well, if that's communism, we should have it. Yeah, sign me up, right? Because, uh, yeah, he was just talking about a fair, equal, just life for everyone. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what's wrong with that? You know, um, so that's the kind of music I've always believed in. You know, after Pete Seeger, I actually got into jazz for a while until uh, 
you know, the Miles Davis uh, kind of blues, Sketches of Spain, those early records. Um, and then a friend of mine brought over a record and said, you got to hear this singer. You, you got to hear this guy. And he put the record on my dad's good stereo. I remember where I was standing and it, the record came on and I fell down laughing because the guy was so ridiculous. I said, this guy is not a singer. Oh, I know. You got to listen to the lyrics. <laughs> this Bob Dylan is really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I started listening to the lyrics and as I listened some more, it turned out that the guy actually sang the way I sang. <laughs> uh huh. I'm not any Frank Sinatra either, you know. And uh, and the lyrics had great meaning for me, and I learned a lot from Bob Dylan. And, uh, uh, a lot of people did, uh, you know. Yeah. Our, our our Nobel laureate, uh, that, yes. uh, <laughs> who uh, who, who's still out there uh, every day. In fact, I, I I get to see Bob mm -hmm. next Monday, so uh, he's coming. Oh, cool! To yeah, he's coming here in a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, you you can't go wrong with that. So, and and I mm -hmm. think uh, you you shot him at the Newport Folk Festival in '65. Is that right? Yes, the first um, photo yeah. pass I was able to get. That was, and that was that was the year that Bob goes electric. Right. Yeah. So right. You I, I didn't know anybody in the business. I didn't know, you know, I didn't have any contacts, but I bluffed my way into a photo pass. And um, so I was there and I got some good pictures when he played with the electric guitar and the band. And um, I actually didn't know where to send them for six or eight years um, until the early <laughs> 70s when I started making contacts. Yeah. Um, and since then, my pictures have been the main one that people use. Uh, when they when they talk about Bob Dylan at Newport, yeah, because the, there's the, only a few other photographers there. Yeah, because yeah, I, I I don't think a lot of people were expecting that. They just thought, oh, the great Bob Dylan's coming to, right to play again, uh, right, and uh, and show us, uh, you know, his people's music with his acoustic guitar, like his hero Woody Guthrie would do, and uh, mm. he shocked everybody. So of course, Bob, I have to ask you uh, as a witness. You know, was the crowd as uh, rambunctious and uh, negative as uh, mythology? Rambunctious, holds? yes. Negative, no. Um, people say that a lot of people were booing, which is true, but a lot of people were cheering as well, and a lot of people just yelling at each other in the seats because what he was doing was something very new. Yeah. And uh, and people don't like change. People are upset with you know anything new. If anything changes, if it's not what they're comfortable with. People can be scared of, of change. And uh, and so a lot of people were. What I think Bob Dylan was doing that day was that he was kind of announcing that rock and roll was the folk music of America. Yeah. And I think that uh, time has proven him to be right. Uh, without question. It was the right move, and maybe others uh, should have followed suit, and uh, they might still have a career uh, themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, not not taking anything away from uh, you know traditional folk music and the pursuit of right. That. Uh, it was, it's just not the music of the time. No, and it wasn't going to make the impact that electrified uh, music uh, did. Um, right, beginning you know let's face it, it's kind of the Beatles. Right, and the fact is, just about every kid in high school is in one or two or three bands nowadays. Shows you that the music of today is rock and roll. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, you also were at Woodstock, but again, I, I don't think that was a mm. professional gig, right? You were just no, I wasn't wet. really connected yet. I, I went as a Who fan. Uh, I saw the whole list of performers, and in the middle of the list, it said the Who. And in those days, if I ever saw the Who playing a concert, I bought a ticket, and I went. 
And in fact, I bought four tickets to Woodstock. Yeah, <laughs> I still have them. <laughs> yeah, which you didn't have to use because it ended nope. up being a free uh, event. Uh, right. And uh, I think the the Who played like like three or four in the morning, if I remember right. Very late at night. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but that's what I was there for. I waited around for them. We saw. We went over. I think we saw Creedence Clearwater, and then Janis Joplin was great. And then my friends, they headed back to the tent, but I was waiting to see the Who and. Uh, it was getting later and later. Sly and the Stone came on, and uh, I remember dancing because uh, people, some people had started bonfires, but then, and it was so chilly, you know, out in the mountains in the middle of the night. It gets kind of cold. So yeah. I'm not a dancer. I never danced, but that's why I remember it because I was so cold. Uh-huh. I was jumping around this, this, you know, bonfire trying to look like I was dancing. Um, but wow. then the Who came on, and the Who were absolutely amazing. It was worth going. Uh, I mean, a whole weekend. Yeah, Tommy. Much more Tommy than was con- brand new, I believe. They uh, they were just kind of uh, premiering. Pretty that. new. Yeah, it was pretty new. I think I had seen them play it at the film world already by that time. Uh-huh. Um, but it was pretty cool that they played the whole thing. Uh, Daltrey looked amazing with the jacket with these the long fringe. fringes. He looked like a bird flying around on the stage. Yeah. Um, it was really, but the whole Woodstock was much more than uh, music. You know, it was all about the experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, by '69, here Woodstock, four hundred thousand people there, like like we've established now. You know, you caught Elvis firsthand uh, uh, in '56. Uh, you saw the the Beatles break uh, in '64. Uh, you're at Newport when Dylan goes electric, mm-hmm. and by '69, now this thing is a thing. Uh, because up until then, oh, yeah. <laughs> there, 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 it was like you know, is it a fad? It's minor. Now, did you did you recognize that when you were walking around along with four hundred thousand of your other uh, favorite baby? Well, people? you don't really know your place in history in the present. You know, um, you find history is something you see in hindsight, but when you're standing in a field in the middle of you know some mountainside somewhere. You don't know you're making history. <laughs> you know, you're, it's not until you read about it in the paper a few days later, uh, or years later, or fifty years later. <laughs> um, no, I don't think you know at the time that you're creating something. So uh, the, the the vibe inside. I mean, was... I have always been aware that rock and roll, when it first came out, I was a teenager, and this was supposed to be a teenage fad that was supposed to fade away. Yeah. I mean, in the '60s, as I was, you know, getting older, certainly in the '70s. It was supposed to be kids' music, but it wasn't. It was everybody's music. Yeah. It, and, it, uh, it, for instance, it, the Rolling Stones are still playing, and they're still the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Yeah. And they're well over teenage <laughs> years. <laughs> <laughs> they're even they're, older than they're, me. They're, 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 they're way past retirement age. Uh, no, they're but, even older than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're well. No, uh, Bob, I think they're about as old as you. I think no, no, they got they got five years. They got, on they, me. Got, they got five years on you. Okay, all right. Yep. Uh, uh, but yes, I I just caught them uh, on their latest tour, and uh, mm-hmm. I, I, you're absolutely right. Uh, every time I walk away, going greatest rock and roll band in the world. Uh, yeah, if you keep doing the same thing, you got to get better. At it, you know? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just like you with the camera, huh? So, uh, mm-hmm. oh yeah, all right. So, uh, uh, but like like we said, these these things weren't. Uh, oh, well, one more thing about Woodstock. I just got to ask your perspective mm-hmm. inside of it. While you didn't 
understand that this was going to be a historical moment. What you know? Mm. What was your takeaway? I mean, you know, we we've gotten some um, um, uh, some reports from people who were there who were like, ah, you know, it was a big mess. Uh, it rained. It was muddy. Uh, you know, no, no, it was not a for disaster. me. Not for me. I, I was a Boy Scout. I brought mm-hmm. a good tent. I got the merit badge for cooking, so I know how to cook <laughs> in the woods. Uh, I had a fantastic time. We brought some booze. We brought a tent. We brought some food. We ended up actually camping right next to the hog farm that was giving out the free oh, food. Oh, wavy gravies, people. Um, yeah, um, which was all vegetarian. Yeah. And on a Saturday afternoon, the National Guard flew in food supplies. And what it was was the big hotels nearby, uh, nobody could get there. So they were giving away the food that they had prepared. Uh, and they had what I remember was 50-gallon tubs, you know, industrial size uh, pots of marinated lamb. Oh. That the hog farm, being vegetarians, wasn't into cooking, but they would give away to anybody who could cook. And I was 50 feet away from their site with a campfire ready to go, and I had, you know, pans and grills and all kinds of things. So we started making shish kebab, we started making lamb stew. We had a feast. And then when it rained, we went in the tent and took a nap. And it was all so, good. You know, there, there was no <laughs> rain had, or mud for me, and, right. and there was loads of food where we were. You had so food, we had a ball. Food, drink. So, yeah. Uh, shelter. Uh, uh, people came by when we started making the lamb stew, and they were giving us pot and mescaline and all kinds of things. <laughs> nice. So we were we were totally set up. Oh, very nice. So there is nothing but uh, you can't say anything but good about uh, your experience at Woodstock. My experience was fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's good. All right. So there are some mysteries, like how we found the car at the end, but we we did somehow. Oh, <laughs> <got> yeah. Home. <laughs> Yeah, because you had to park on the side of the road miles away, right? Yeah, we parked somewhere in a field, and I don't know who, you know, remembered or how we got back there, but um, but we did. Oh, good for you. So uh, how did you actually get into the music biz shooting uh, photography? Well, I was living with a rock and roll band in the 60s. Oh, yes. That's and every right. time they changed drummers, they changed names. And finally, <laughs> the, at the last incarnation, they were called the Glitter House. Uh-huh. Uh, having nothing to do with glitter. The Dr. Glitterhouse is the name of a movie. And they took it from that. And uh, they actually broke up. And then the piano player got one last gig. And they played that party that uh, the guy's father had come up with a gig for them. Uh, and Bob Crew, the famous uh, music producer, uh, discovered them at that party and had them sing the vocals for the Barbarella movie. Oh. And he liked them doing that so much that he made an album for them. He produced an album that was on Atlantic Records. And when they made the record, uh, Atlantic called me to see photos of the band. I had been taking pictures of them for a couple of years. Uh, and they used my pictures in the publicity package and then started to hire me to take pictures for other bands. And little by little, instead of dropping out, I was falling in. <laughs> yeah, you you were failing upwards, as they might say. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so were most of these uh, other Atlantic artists? Um, well, I think the first job I got hired for actually was Tommy James and the Shondells playing in a parking lot opening for Hubert Humphrey, who was campaigning. That was like okay. 1968, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then it was kind of slow. I got a couple of jobs here and there. Um, but my big break came in 1970. I met Ike and Tina Turner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tell us about that. A friend of mine had said that Tina was the most amazing performer, and we had to go and mm-hmm. see her. Mm-hmm. And we did, and she was the most amazing performer. And so um, they were playing a few shows around the New York area. 
and we went back a couple of days later to a place called the Hunkamonka Room, which is where I really first saw them. Uh, they were opening. They were the opening act in the first time I saw them. So at the Hunkamonka Room, I brought my camera. I started taking some pictures. And at the end of the act, uh, a strobe light flashes, and Tina dances off the stage with a strobe light. You know, you get different still images in your mind as a strobe light. Oh, I know this shot, yes. So I thought, what if I opened the camera for one second and I caught a few of those flashes? Maybe it would work out. So I only had about four or five frames left in the roll, and I, I shot them during the strobe part. And then three or four of them are absolutely useless. There's just, you know, an image here or there. But one of them just fell together perfectly. And I, I don't mean to brag, but it's kind no, of like you should nude descending the staircase. It's just a perfect five images of Tina showing the power and the energy and the fury that is Tina Turner, the excitement that's Tina Turner, all in one picture. Yeah, all captured. And I brought the still. pictures with me a couple of days later to show to my friends. We, we went to see another Ike and Tina show. And it happened that the, it was a theater in the round, so the dressing rooms were outside. And as we were walking out, my friend saw Ike walking from one dressing room to another and pushed me in front of Ike Turner <laughs> and uh, said, you know, show Ike the pictures. And he stopped and he said, what pictures? And I showed him my pictures. And he said, oh, these are pretty good pictures. I've got to show these to Tina. And he took me in the dressing room and all of a sudden Tina Turner was liking my pictures. And I was standing there, you know, the shy kid who had no idea this was going to happen. Um and for the next two years, I traveled with Ike and Tina. The, actually, the next year, about nine months later, in spring of 71, my first album cover was a picture of Tina Turner. So was that... We went on to make videos for them. You did, you did. So was that... Well, was I had that, the very first kind of portable video machine invented. Like, now everybody takes color pictures, you know, with their phone. But this was a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder that uh, carried a battery for a half hour. It would shoot black and white, mono sound, it didn't work well in the dark, and it was a modern miracle that you could just tape anything at all. Right. Uh, and the fact that I could tape a, you know, videotape a show and then go back to the dressing room or the hotel and Tina could show it to the iCats and they could go over the routines and see it while it was still fresh. Because before that, um, there was no videotape and, and the only way to see yourself was, was to make a, a movie and get oh, it developed and come back a week or two later and screen it, you know, uh -huh. or in a mirror. But then you're doing it and not actually watching it. Yeah. But this way with the right, video, right. I could, you know, shoot the show and then immediately have to go back and show it to Tina and the iCats and it helped them improve the act so they liked having me around and uh, and they liked the pictures I was taking so they picked one for the album cover and uh, we've we've released a lot of that footage as a DVD called I Can Tina Turner on the Road 1971-72. Uh, it's a really nice DVD. It's the only one that shows them working together, traveling, uh, Tina at home cooking, I Can Studio recording. Um, it doesn't capture the part that happened later where, yeah. uh, you know, the I abuse. got kind of violent. Yeah. Mm. And uh, I never saw that between them. But that, you know, certainly uh, Tina talks about it happening, and I'm sure it did. You don't have to hit somebody every day. If you hit them once, you know, all you have to do is raise your hand for the next five years, and they'll flinch, you know, or, or yeah. cower. Yeah. So I think, you know, that movie kind of painted Ike in a bad light because um, the Ike that I knew was very generous and uh, and quite the musician, but helping loads and loads of people. Uh, but it was an issue that really needed to be brought to the public. And, uh, you know, like I say, I'm sorry that Ike was the poster child, but the issue, uh, because of that movie, uh, millions of women have been helped. You know, the the fact that this is a, an issue that people talk about and they work to alleviate is very important. Yes, it is. Uh,
it's just too bad that I had to take the fall. Uh, well, but I, I had a good time working with them anyway. And that I was did a lot first, of great pictures of them. And that was the first that band was the I first really legend, The first legend you actually. Yeah. So that was a good introduction because with them I got to really be comfortable with well-known people because you know certainly I got to be very close and comfortable with with Ike and Tina and the band and all kinds of people who came to see them. Yeah, yeah. Did that uh, did that open the door to the Rolling Stones because you, you you shot a lot of uh, Rolling Stones? No, actually, interestingly, time. no. Um, it opened the door to the music business for me. Um, you know, in meeting general. more uh, in general. Like they, I, I met their publicist. He took me to a party where I met two more people. One of whom introduced me, talked. Uh, I remember one of the people I met at the party talked uh, MCA Records into hiring me to photograph this new piano player that was coming over from England, this guy named Elton John, uh, and I became his, I mean, he was brand new, you know, yeah. just a studio musician, it was his first time in New York, and one of the first times I was hired to do somebody, but we got along really well, and for the next couple of years, I was his personal photographer in this, you know, in this part of the world. Were you at the True and, uh, Lador in LA when? Uh, no, Okay. I was at the next show. Okay. <laughs> the two Boy, of them, yeah, I think you're that, getting that's to be like Russell Zeller Trump. here, you know. So yeah, no, that uh, the, the, I didn't get out to L.A. too often. I, I last about three days in, in Los Angeles. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm a New Yorker. You are a New I love Yorker. to go out there and get a convertible. I, I drive <laughs> yep. out into the sunshine, and then the next morning I'm like, "Where's the airport?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been sitting in traffic all day since I got here. You know. Yeah, no fun. Um, no fun. <laughs> but. Um, but that's where uh, at the Troubadours where Leon Russell saw Elton John and and yeah. took him on to open yeah. the tour and I saw him when he was the opening act for Leon Russell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, do you prefer the live shooting or or, or backstage or or that studio? Uh, I prefer shooting for somebody who has a budget. <laughs> uh, I'll take any. Well, we picture. all like that. I'm, yeah, but. Uh, I'm not really good at pre, you know, setting things up like studio lighting, like fashion photography, where you have to. Yeah have the exposure exactly perfect uh -huh. and you want the lights, you know, within a half an inch of where you're going to, you know, planning to put them or whatever. Um, I don't really do a lot of setup. I'm very spontaneous, but as far as live or backstage or airplane, uh, I mean, I like airplanes because then you're going somewhere, you know, right. <laughs> right. Um, but it really, I'm just more into a natural spontaneous, getting good pictures of people being themselves. Yeah, I think you you've said uh, in in other interviews that you know you, you you thought your job was trying to capture the rock and roll lifestyle, right? Yeah. So tell us about that. I mean, and so uh, very quickly at the beginning, I, I think it was around 1970. Well, even before that, yeah. Anyway, around 71, 72, I met Lisa Robinson, who was a major columnist in the world. She wrote for the New York Post, but it was a column that was syndicated to 175 newspapers around America and the NME in London, which was the biggest paper yeah. in England, the music paper, uh, and also Hit Parader magazine. And so I started working with her. She's the one who got me my first Rolling Stones photo pass and, uh, and all kinds of other things. And the thing about Rock Scene magazine uh, that was different from the other magazines would have a picture or two of a guy with a microphone and they'd interview him about breakfast. But rock scene covered the scene where we would have pictures on the tour bus and then the you know, sound check and in the dressing rooms and then after parties and pictures with the managers and the publicists and, the, you know, everybody involved. It was the whole scene. So it gave me a reason to shoot everything. 
right. and not just have to have a photo session to do a portrait of some guy. So it but started with a gig. Scenes. It started with a gig that you you, you got, uh, mm-hmm. and, and and you just started following around uh, the you know whatever these guys were doing. Uh, well, in a sense, but the thing about rock scene was that we were the magazine focused on the, the scene, not one particular. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't about uh, the, a guy holding a microphone. It was like Robert Gordon gets a haircut, and that was yeah, a full yeah, page. The magazine yeah, was yeah. mostly photos. Yeah, I took pictures of suicide goes to the racetrack. Uh-huh. Um, David and Sarinda having a picnic on their fire escape. Um, I think it was David and Sarinda at home. You know, so we made like a two page spread. Um, Clash on tour was a three page spread. Uh, it was mostly photos. Rock scene magazine. It was like a comic book. Oh, interesting. So that uh, that led to you really focusing on what was going on off stage, uh, right. at least as much as what you were doing uh, shooting while these guys were performing. Absolutely, off stage. If not, I mean, if not more than on stage. Yeah. So, so that leads me to the question. Let, let's just talk about what, what what rock and roll is and what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, what what does it mean first to you, and and then what does it mean now? Well, for me, for me, rock and roll is about freedom. Yeah, I think that's why it's become so popular. Mm-hmm. It's about freedom to express your feelings very loudly in public. Yeah, which really was not really uh, accepted uh, prior to the. No, in the fifties was a very repressed time. Yeah, so this yeah. idea of being able to be free and to be open, um, for me, rock and roll is about that moment when everybody in the crowd is yelling "Yay!" Mm-hmm. They all got their hands in the air, and everybody's just screaming "Yay!" And nobody's thinking about paying the rent, and nobody's thinking about where they have to go tomorrow. It's all about that "Yay!" Living moment. in that moment, that that yes. one moment right there. Uh, do you do you think it still exists today? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Do you see it, see it out there? I mean. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I see stadiums cheering for, you know, for Green Day or for the Rolling Stones or, you know, uh, not to put down other kinds of music because they get people up and screaming as well. So um, whoever fills the stadium and has everybody yelling, yay, that's okay. That's all that matters. That's all that matters. And that that is rock and roll then uh, to you. Yeah. It's that as long as you get that uh, that audience to to do exactly that. Then you've achieved the goal of of, mm-hmm. of transferring this this expressive public freedom uh, out there. Right. Oh. Right. All right. All right. All right. What about shooting rock and roll live back in the day compared to today? I mean, you could you know you got you got every audience member out there who thinks they're a photographer with their damn nowadays. Yeah, it didn't used to be so much competition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's always been difficult. I mean, you know, the lighting, first of all, lighting was not as bright back then. And yeah, so that was a problem, started, trying to right. get a picture and focus, mm-hmm. with, you know, in dim light. Mm-hmm. Um, rock and roll bands tend to move fast. And so you have to kind of anticipate where they're going to be and what the light's going to be before you they get there. Because the old cameras used to have to be set manually. You had to mm-hmm. turn a ring to set the speed or the focus or the... The, the amount of light, and now all of that is completely automatic. You just touch one button and you get a perfect picture, which is amazing to me because it used to 
be uh, you had to work to get that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you feel like your job is being outsourced to uh, you know a tiny? Well, I think like my job is uh, obsolete. Um, not outsourced, but it's not so much obsolete as just it's changed so much that um, you used to have to be a photographer and know how to operate the machine of a camera and then know how to develop and print the pictures yeah. and then have the wherewithal to figure out how to send them out to you know magazines to publish them now everybody publishes their own within seconds on their own facebook or instagram page uh you don't have to develop or print anything you don't have to focus anything you don't have to set any exposure you just pick up the phone push you know touch the phone you get a picture touch it two more times and it's around the world yeah so that's really changed what I used to do, you know, yeah, since yeah. I used to take pictures, go home and develop them, you know, make some prints the next day, send them to a magazine. And a month and a half later, that magazine would be on the stands and it would be news. Yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, but, uh, before the first song is over, everybody in the world knows what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's out on Instagram. But yeah. but, but it, it, I found it kind of funny. I saw something the other day where Bob Dylan stopped the concert because he was angry at people taking so many pictures and filming them. Yeah. And that was, I saw it on YouTube. <laughs> Somebody filmed yeah, that. <laughs> you well, can't that, win. That, it's very you know. meta. It's a different I, world. You, yeah. you can't go back to the old way. No. it's uh, Yeah. Unfortunately, in some ways, uh, you know, everything's a, a double-edged sword. Uh, you know, as you, mm. as you, you mentioned er, in the early days, it was a question of lighting and having to right. uh, anticipate uh, and then, you know, I'm sure by the time you get in the mid to late 70s, the lighting's uh, fantastic. Uh, you, you're still dealing with film. Uh, and then you start getting into the 90s. And uh, now you're dealing in the digital age. So now you can shoot to your heart's content. Uh, mm. And so, yeah, there's, there's, there's but a lot of things. everybody's shooting their own pictures. But now everybody's, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, there's still something to be said about the artist's eye. Uh, you know, a trained mm -hmm. uh, 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 individual with their proverbial 10,000 hours, as opposed to some schmuck with an iPhone just happened to be pointed at the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, but you just don't see where, you, you, I, I guess what you're telling me is that that uh, kids, uh, if there's anybody out there who wants to become the next Bob Gruen, choose another career path. Well... <clears throat> Yes and no. I mean, I still see photographers out there all the time working. Um, it's just a different, um, you know, uh, a different landscape, Yeah. you know, of where to show them and how to get them out. Yeah. Um, but I always enjoy taking pictures, and I think it's great that so many more people can enjoy what I did. It, it is. Uh, it, I mean, if you think about it, uh, especially with the newer uh, uh, cell phones these days with the cameras, right. I mean, they put so much into the camera. advertise the phone as a camera it is yeah it's 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 crazy so like everybody runs around you know documenting their entire lives uh mm -hmm. which is uh you know i i guess the you know the end result of, of what started here uh you know uh, 100 and, uh almost 200 years ago now uh, with the, right. the invention of photography so so working with john lennon really seems to set your career on fire and, and since it was mm -hmm. his birthday yesterday i gotta mm -hmm. ask uh, uh you know I, I i'll tell you I, I saw so many tributes and posts um mm -hmm. he turned 70 he would have turned 79 yesterday but right. what i and probably most people saw perhaps more than any other shot was your John uh, with his New York shirt uh, pick right. on? So, 
Tell it's us about getting to be the most popular tomorrow. one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I saw it so many times yesterday. I was mm. like, oh, I, I, I get to talk to that guy tomorrow. That's awesome. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us about working with John and Yoko. And I, I think you're still friends with Yoko. And did yeah. you, uh, uh, you know, how, how you got into uh, into that circle? I mean, from Ike and Tina Turner to, you know, basically now you're now you're working with the Beatles. I don't, I don't think there's much bigger than that. No, they were pretty big. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but for me, John and Yoko were almost bigger because um, because they were saying something, because they work for peace, because they're Yoko's amazing artworks and, and inspiration and what John got from her. Yeah. Uh, so that when I went to meet them, it wasn't just meeting a Beatle, I was meeting John and Yoko. And that was, to me, a much bigger thing than meeting a band. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you love the love in the 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 uh, the piece work that uh, they had done the war is uh, and war is and I like the way they and, they would yeah. capture the media attention just to focus the idea on peace yeah that they sent acorns to every leader of every country in the world so that the world could grow together right, right. and that might not you know make people you know uh, it might not be a way to stop a war. But it is a way to get people to think about stopping wars. Oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I yeah. I, and I, and when I, when they wanted to take a honeymoon, John and Yoko were like every other couple. They wanted to go in a private place and be alone for a couple of days. And the more they thought about how private they could be, the more they realized that the press would hound them, trying to find out where they were. And then Yoko had the idea and saying, well, if the press is going to find us wherever we are, mm-hmm. why don't we just invite them in? And the most important picture they want is a picture of us in bed on our honeymoon. So why don't we let them take that picture, but we put the word peace behind us Yeah. so that every newspaper in the world has the word peace in it. Yeah. And that's what that was all about. Yeah. And that's Brilliant. something I admired a lot. Yeah. So meeting John and Yoko was a much bigger thing than meeting a band. Yeah. So you you kind of gain their trust as a uh, as just a person, not really a photographer, I believe, to to start with, right? Um, well, to start with as a photographer, <clears throat> um, that's how we met. I met through an interview, and they liked the pictures I did. And Yoko, uh, we spent an afternoon talking because they were picking out one of the pictures they used in their uh, the album package for Sometime in New York City album. And after that first meeting, when we were talking. Because I had, I met them through an interview, and the pictures that I took the night of the interview, uh, they liked a lot, and they wanted to use in the album. And the day I met them, after we talked for an afternoon, Yoko told me that they liked me, and they wanted to, me to stay in touch with them, and uh, and to come, you know, feel free to come back anytime I could to take pictures. And I've always had that access, and I still do today. Yeah, yeah. All right, so the New York... I can't tell you how you become friends with somebody, because... It wasn't on purpose. It just kind of worked out that way. Well, I think, you know, we, 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 we brought this idea of uh, the counterculture, peace, love, dropping mm-hmm. out. Uh, You've you mentioned this in various points throughout your life. So you, mm-hmm. you, were, you were in that club uh, mm-hmm. even beforehand just by your own personal philosophy. So I can see where you and John and Yoko would, would immediately become fast friends. We had a similar outlook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, how did you get that New York shot, uh, the New York shirt picture, which is so iconic? Well, actually, that took a little while to get together because, um, first of all, the shirts weren't made by a company. They were made by some guys who sold them on the sidewalk in Times Square. Right. And the first time I saw them, I liked the shirt. I thought it had a good, powerful graphic. 
I bought a couple of them, I think. Or at least I bought one. I started wearing it after I liked it. The next time I saw them on the street, because they were only there sometimes, um, I bought a couple more. They were $5. <laughs> and one night when I was on my way to meet John at the record plant, they were out there, so I bought one, and I cut the sleeves off with my buck knife, and uh, and I gave it to John as a gift. I gave a couple of friends of mine shirts like that. Um, and then it was a year later, after he had been to California and back a few times, um, you know, the lost weekend period. Yeah. Uh, he was back in New York, and we were taking pictures on his roof for um, the Walls and Bridges album cover. And after we took the pictures of the album cover, he said, let's take some more so we have pictures for publicity, you know, already. And I said, well, do you still have that shirt I gave you last year? We're on the roof with the skyline all around us. Why don't you wear that shirt? It'd probably look good. And he knew right where it was, and he went and put it on. And the fact that he had been to L.A. and back through all that chaos, mm-hmm. but he still knew where the shirt was, I knew he liked it. Yeah. And uh, we had no idea that that day that picture was going to become so well-known. No. Uh, no. And in fact, the picture, one of the pictures I did of his full face that was used for the album cover, uh, last year that picture was put on a United States postage stamp. Really? So all around, it was a pretty good day. <laughs> we got <laughs> an album cover, so. we got the best picture of him, and, and we got a stamp. And you got a posted stamp. Wow. Yep. Uh, I hope you have a big framed copy of those stamps uh, somewhere uh, in your uh, in your loft there. I think so, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Upstairs. <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> the early 70s had you shoot a lot of iconic artists. So we've already talked about mm-hmm. some of them. Um, but I have to ask about a particular shot. Uh, uh, because when I was a kid, I had this poster. Uh, and it fueled mm. too many fantasies for me. And that's the Led Zeppelin shot standing in front of their plane mm. in 1973. So tell us uh, about A lot that. of people do tend to imagine themselves in that picture, don't they? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, is that not the ultimate rock and roll fantasy? Look, you know, these rock gods with their own plane. I know. You got your shirt wide open. You yeah. don't give a crap about anything. And you got your own plane. <laughs> and you got your own fucking plane. That's right. Uh even though now in fact, I know. Dave Bryan from the Bon Jovi band told me that he saw that. And he's one of the few people who's told me that story who actually did get his own plane. Yes, he did. <laughs> that, is right. that is right. Yeah. But, uh, and, but as we know. A lot of people had that on their wall. Yeah. As we know, it really wasn't their plane. It was, uh, it no. was called the Starship. That, uh, well, it was uh, that uh, month. Yeah, it was well, you that month. you rent it for a month, you get your it, name painted yeah, on yeah, it. Yeah, it was called the right. Enterprise Starship. Right. Um, and it was rented by the Rolling Stones. Alice Cooper had it for a while. I was actually on it with Elton John as well. Yes. Led, yes. Uh, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was a really nice plane. Yeah. yeah actually, <laughs> it had a couple I think of first it, it, class kind of seats in the front. And, yeah. Yeah. And it, then it had a big brass bar with some banquets in the middle section. And it had two bedrooms in the back. And one of the bedrooms had like electric fireplace. Yeah. I think it makes an appearance in uh, the uh, Elton John biopic Rocket Man as well so yeah so, a version <laughs> yeah, right 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 the studio version so tell the us about, version, yeah. about the day that because this was was it 73 i think it was the 73 tour right uh and they had landed in new york it was i, I think we're getting ready to right. film this whole thing um uh with uh with what became uh song remains the same right Right. There is actually um, uh, one or two seconds of me in the footage there uh, as they're coming down out of the plane. I think there's a couple of seconds of me actually taking the picture. Yeah. It's in the film. Um, Or it might just be walking down the the steps. But, yeah, it was a great day. Uh, I hadn't known who Led Zeppelin was 
uh, I wasn't really aware of them. I was with, you know, in those years I was traveling with Ike and Tina Turner and the New York Dolls and uh, Kiss and Alice Cooper, and I just wasn't aware of uh, Led Zeppelin. Uh, Lisa Robinson called me up one morning and said, you know, uh, what are you doing? I said, I'm free. She said, okay, we're going to go to, I think it's Pittsburgh with Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I said, really, how are we getting there? She said, oh, they have their own plane. I said, oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, and I met him in Midtown, and we went out to the airport. And um, I remember we were just getting on the plane. I don't know if it was Lisa or Robert. Somebody said, let's take a picture by the plane. And they just walked over, and we took a—I mean, it's like six or eight shots. There's not even a lot of pictures, and uh, and that one became just the iconic moment. Yeah, it really is uh, iconic, and you know, like uh, like I said, I and uh, you know thousands, uh, if not hundreds of thousands of other kids uh, had that on our wall there. So um, uh, uh, now I might be biased, but I might suggest peak Bob Gruen. Mm -hmm uh is really comes about during the punk movement um my my first question is did you recognize this kind of new genre and how did you get involved with those early punk bands uh no i didn't recognize it that, that's part of the you know hindsight of history that i happened to be there um but it wasn't even that new to me i've been working with uh you know, the New York Dolls and yeah, kind uh, of a proto -punk and Alice yeah. Cooper and yeah. Kiss and uh, and then CBGB's was already open by then. Yeah. So yeah, I'd least. seen mm -hmm. television and Blondie and Patti Smith and Talking Heads and the Miamis and Shirts and all kinds of bands. And um, it was actually the summer of 76. I met Malcolm McLaren when he was in New York uh, and he wasn't actually managing the New York Dolls as a lot of reports say he was the manager of the Dolls. He, he wasn't really. He was their haberdasher, as <laughs> David Johansson likes to say. Uh, he, he had a closed store in England. Yeah. Well, he had a closed yeah, store in England and the Dolls met him. Yeah. Yeah. And so he made up a whole bunch of special outfits of the band, all in red colors. And, um, and he got to New York, and the band was basically breaking up. The management had dropped them. Johnny and Jerry were junkies. Uh, Arthur was a total alcoholic. And what I do credit Malcolm for is that he saved their lives. He got all Johnny, Jerry, and Arthur into rehab centers and cleaned them up a bit because he wanted them to wear his clothes. Right. <laughs> and he managed to clean them up enough to get back on stage and wear his clothes, but it only lasted about a month, and they broke up. And then uh, he went back to England shortly after that. Um, I didn't know that he was planning to start a new band with Sylvain from the Dolls. Um, I played a little part of a role there because... Uh, they had made a plan for Malcolm to start a new band, and Syl was going to be the leader. But then within a couple of months, I got I connected David and Syl with a promoter from Japan, and they ended up going to uh, do a little tour in Japan in the summer. And Malcolm got tired of waiting, and he got this other guy to be the singer, and the band ended up being the Sex Pistols. Right, Johnny Rotten. Right, right, <laughs> but that right. was supposed to be Sylvain's band. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Until I messed things up. But, um, <laughs> well, good. Good for you. Uh, yeah, so things worked out all right in the end. They sure But when did. I went to England, but I, I didn't really even know that Malcolm was starting a band. I, I had very little contact with England, except that I, they printed my pictures in the newspaper, so I got them. And I remember one day Johansson was visiting me here, and he said, hey, look, there's a, a little review about Malcolm's band, the Sex Pistols. And I said, what? He said, yeah, Malcolm's got a new band. It's called the Sex Pistols. I said, Sex Pistol? You can't say that on the radio. How can he possibly call a band the Sex Pistols? Is he crazy? Now, of course, you say it, and it just slides over your tongue. It sounds like the name of a band. But back then, 
those two words together, it sounded obscene. You know? Oh, uh, it, was, <laughs> it, it was pushing the limits at that time. It was bleeding very, edge. I mean, yeah. I, first time I heard it, I thought they're never going to say that on, on the radio. Oh, they tried not no. to. Uh, <laughs> they tried not to. They banned it when it was a number one hit record. They yeah. Were, they wouldn't let it play on the radio. Oh, no. In yeah. In fact, they, uh, in the UK, it was the number one record. Yeah. It's just a blank spot. <laughs> blank spot. <laughs> they wouldn't even print the name. Right. That's what I mean. It sounded obscene. Although that so, sounds like a I good didn't... name for a punk band, too. Blank spot. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, but anyway, the thing is, I didn't really know what was going on over there. Um and actually, the review was really lame. Uh, it's, the reviewer said he went to see the Sex Pistols, and the first band was so bad that he went to the bar and had a couple of drinks. And then the second band came on, they were even worse, so he had a few more drinks. And by the time the Sex Pistols came on, he was in the bathroom throwing up, and he didn't see them. <laughs> and I thought, that's not a review. No. <laughs> you know, well, it's a review. I'm sure your mom would be but interested I clearly in that review. Remember, but, uh, I clearly remember that's the first time I saw the Sex Pistols name in print. And I thought, yeah. wow, what is this? Yeah, yeah. So I went to Europe in the summer of 76, uh, or the fall of 76. Actually, my son was two years old at that point. And my mother-in-law had taken him to Paris. They, uh, my my in-laws were French, and or my mother-in-law was French. They had an apartment there, and my son had spent the summer with them. And I wanted to go and see him. And so I basically went to Europe because I had made some money, I think, with the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> and I wanted to go see my son, and so I, that's why I went to Europe. And while I was there, I figured I might as well stop in England. I've never been there, and I, I know Malcolm. Maybe he can show me around you know so malcolm was really the only phone number i had besides the editor of the melody maker who was a very conservative kind of guy uh, and i called malcolm and he found me a rooming house a cheap place i could stay and i went there and he took me to a place called club louise and that first night there i met johnny rotten and the sex pistols i met joe and mick from the clash i met Susie and the banshees uh marco peroni i think billy idol uh, Caroline Kuhn and John Savage, the journalists who were the first to write up the punk movement. Basically, the whole kernel of what became the English punk movement yeah. was in that bar in, in that Club room. Louise. Right. They right. would hang out every night down there. And uh, and that's where I ended up my first night in England. So I didn't really know what was going on, but I found out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And again, because I worked for Rock Scene, that enabled me to take pictures of the scene Right. I was taking pictures of everybody, and I took a lot of pictures in the club that night. And um, in fact, Roxy was the first one that had the Sex Pistols and the Clash on the cover in America. Yeah, and then uh, you, you did you go with them on their one and only American tour? Yes, yes, and that again was uh, kind of an accident uh, because I saw them in '76 when Glenn was in the band, and yeah. I took pictures of them. Malcolm encouraged me to come by their studio, and I took pictures and. Malcolm was in and out the door. Uh, they didn't have a phone. In those days, you had to put two pence coins in the pay phone down the block to make a phone call. <laughs> so he was running in and out, kind of, you know, getting everybody to chip in all the two pence that we had. So he could go make his and, phone calls to get gigs. Yeah, and then he came back. He said, okay, Bob, you're hearing a good day. We're going to sign the contract with EMI Records. And so I went with the band to EMI, and I pictures of them signing their contract there. Uh, which lasted a couple of weeks until they got kicked <laughs> off the label. <laughs> well, and, for, bad, um, for bad television appearance, but yes. Yeah. And then, uh, well, I came back the following year. That was the thing. I think they were kicked off before the TV show because um, then they were on A&M uh, and no, they got kicked right. off of that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But um, 
but anyway, I came back in 77, and Sid was in the band, and they had just uh, cursed on TV, and the whole country knew who they were. And it was quite a different scene. And I went with them to Luxembourg, actually. And then they came to New York a few months later, and I had been planning just to get some pictures of them in New York. They were supposed to play the Saturday Night Live TV show and then go out on a tour across the South, which I wasn't really that interested in going with, in this unknown band out of the nowhere. But they, um, it turned out Sid had some kind of visa problem, uh-huh. oddly enough. So the trip was delayed by a couple of days, and they didn't uh, they didn't do the Saturday Night Live. Actually, if you ever see the Saturday Night Live that Elvis Costello was on, yeah, they were supposed to be. There. Uh, yeah, Malcolm recommended that they get Elvis, and yeah. so the drummer wore a T-shirt that says "Thanks, Malk." You oh, can see yeah. it on YouTube. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, but anyway, they went to Atlanta, so I thought I'd go overnight. I'd just go down to Atlanta, get some pictures of them in America, and come home. And as they were leaving, I was in the parking lot. They were getting on the bus, and I was saying, goodbye, good luck. I hope you have fun out there. Too bad I can't come. And Malcolm said, yeah, you can't come, Bob, because we're only allowed 12 on the bus, and there's Sophie and the band and the guard. Well, that's only 11, Bob. Why don't you get on? <laughs> and I was like, what? And the guy next to me said, I'll come, Malcolm. And Malcolm said, sorry, but uh, Bob asked first. <laughs> I, I don't remember asking, actually. But I got on the bus. Malcolm wanted you there is what it was. He wanted me there, I guess. Yeah, so I got on the bus, and 10 days later, I was in San Francisco after one hell of a ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, including the uh, the Houston show where I believe Sid like cuts himself up, and you take that iconic shot of him just covered in blood, right? Yeah, well, it started with a girl punched him in the nose. I actually didn't punch him. She kind of headbutted him. He got a bloody nose, and he started taking the blood, like wiping it and splashing it at her, and she was spitting back, and then it kind of dried up. So he took a beer bottle and broke it, and he was about to cut himself when the road manager grabbed his wrist and kind of like catching a kid with his hand in the cookie jar, and Sid looked like, oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) And he stopped, and it looks like his chest is really um, cut, but it's not. It's... Part of the lines are the blood that dripped from his nose. Oh. And another part of the lines, he actually had written on his chest with a magic marker. And because uh, the, the management, the roadies, not Malcolm, but the roadies were keeping him away from all the fans. And he just was dying to get some drugs, and they didn't want him to get any drugs, so they wouldn't let him meet anybody. So he literally wrote on his chest, give me a fix. <laughs> Hoping somebody would throw <laughs> something right. up on stage. Um, but that's some of the lines that are on his chest. So that picture, we call it Bloody Sid, and it looks like he cut himself up a lot, but it, it really all just came from his nose. So I don't know if that the, makes it that, better or not. <laughs> uh, it, it just it adds adds fuel to uh, right. the uh, to the mythology uh, of it. Mm. Um, but, um, uh, you know, uh, it was a short tour, uh, and... You know, they broke up by the end of it. Could you see that happening as as, as you went from no complete surprise to me? But I, really? I wasn't involved in the band politics. Uh, to me, they were just becoming more and more successful each night. Um, when I went there, I was very surprised. The first day, there was a, I saw a photographer from the New York Times. There was a reporter from the Times and from the L.A. Times and from a couple of different magazines and. I was really surprised because as far as I knew, this band was going nowhere. They didn't sound good. They were nasty. They they made a point of being obnoxious on stage. I couldn't see that anybody was going to like them. Um, I was just there because I already had a history with them, and I liked Malcolm. And, you know, the Lisa and the magazine were interested in them. 
But uh, I was very surprised with how much attention they were getting. So a few days later, like 10 days later, they're breaking up just at the height of their, you know, acclaim, uh, you know, just as everybody was talking about them. And I had no idea. When I left San Francisco, I didn't know they were breaking up. Uh, I got up the next morning, and uh, I remember making one of my favorite phone calls. I picked up the phone, got the concierge, and I said, what time is the next flight to New York that I can get on? And I got on it. <laughs> and uh, and as I was leaving, I ran into another photographer in the hallway, and he said, hey, you're coming to Rio with us? And I'm like, what? He goes, we're well, – because Malcolm had written a contract that the record company had to buy them a ticket home through whatever route they chose. So he chose the route through Rio. <laughs> and uh, so they went to Rio de Janeiro to meet the, the criminal, the, uh, the train robber. And um, – and so I left, and I thought that they were the band was going there doing whatever. I came back to New York. I spent three days in the darkroom developing the pictures, and then I came out. There was actually a blizzard, and I remember walking through across New York in the blizzard to CBGB's, and I got into the bar, and Johnny was there with a friend of mine, and uh, he said, have you heard the news, mate? And I said, what? And we'd all gotten T-shirts from Warner Brothers that said, I survived the Sex Pistols tour. Yeah, and he opened his jacket to show me that he was wearing his T-shirt, but underneath he had written, "But the band didn't." <laughs> and I was like, "What does that mean?" He goes, "We broke up, mate." Exactly like, that. You broke up. <laughs> what do you mean you broke up? You're the biggest band in the world this week, you know? Yeah. And he said, "Nope, we broke up." And all the stories I thought I was going to do four or five page stories turned into like a postage stamp sized obituary. Yeah. And in fact, nobody talked about the Sex Pistols for the next six years. And it was Gary Oldman who starred in Sid and Nancy, yeah. the Alice Cox movie, mm -hmm. that brought them back. Because he gave such a charismatic personality to Sid that everybody you know, suddenly became more interested in Sid. And, and Sid became the hero of punk rock. Um, Weirdly. But if you actually look, there's only a few videos existing of Sid. And in most of them, he's just nodding out and drooling. He, right. he says almost nothing <laughs> right. that anybody would know about. But Gary Oldman's Sid Vicious is, uh, is a, a three-dimensional character. <laughs> and, and a very charismatic one. You kind of yeah. like him. Yeah, yeah. Ah, mythology. So I, 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 I once met Gary Oldman and I thanked him profusely. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> I sold yeah. a lot of Sid pictures yeah, thanks to you. Because you, of know? you, right, right. Oh, that's great. That's great. Mm. So, all right. So the, three uh, and, and maybe even four iconic bands uh, of the time. Mm -hmm. And you author some of their most famous shots. And we just talked about the Sex Pistols here. So second would be the hometown New York comic book heroes, the Ramones. Uh, mm -hmm. I would assume you hooked up with them, along probably with Blondie as well, uh, through mm -hmm. your CBG uh, yep. days, right? Well, the Ramones was a rock scene assignment. Um, where it wasn't just a picture of them playing the show, but I went out to Forest Hills to spend a day with the Ramones. So I have pictures of them hanging out on the ramp uh, by their school where they would always hang out, uh, and then walking down through Forest Hills to the subway. There's pictures of them on the subway, and then we came out of the subway walking through the Bowery. There's some pictures, and then since they were playing CBGBs, I took a picture of them out in front of the club, now, what's interesting is that picture of the Rollins in front of CBGB's has become iconic over the years. But at the time, neither the Ramones nor CBGB's had any awareness at all, you know, in the media. Like nobody had ever heard of either one. Right. They, they weren't famous at all. Uh, but in the years to come, 
the two of them and the association between the two of them would become a worldwide, you know, phenomenon. So, uh, but originally it was just part of the day. Yeah, it's it's funny how uh, again we we we've mentioned this a couple of times. Uh, you know, history is something that is determined way after the fact. Uh, right. You, you you're not realizing it at the time. Uh, you know. Uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, CBGBs itself wasn't really known much outside of no. New York until way. No, later. that's what I mean. It wasn't like let's take this iconic band and put them in front of an iconic club. It's like, hey guys, stand in front of the club and then we'll go in. You know. <laughs> yeah. Just like any band would do for whatever yeah. club in uh, Main Street USA would do. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And of course, you know, I I, I got to ask because this is going to get us to the book here, and, and that mm-hmm. is the Clash. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you, you actually got to like the, like the sex pistols. I think you went on tour with them. You spent a, a fair amount of time, uh, with them as they were uh, claw, crawling, uh, their way to the, the peak of rock and roll. Right. Well, the class was something I believed in a lot more and I enjoy being with them a lot more. Um, they took life a lot more seriously. You know, they say that the sex pistols made people want to scream with rage, but the, the clash gives them the reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because the Sex Pistols are always looking back with anger, but the Clash are looking to the future with hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always had a much stronger feeling for the Clash. I went on the Clash bus because I wanted to. I, I specifically, you know, worked that out in advance. It was like the Sex Pistols was an accident, you know, the last minute. Like, yeah, okay, I'll come. But with the Clash, I talked <laughs> to the management and the band, and I said I wanted to come, and uh, and took the time off and and spent a couple of weeks going across America on the on the bus. Yeah, that must have been. I mean, you know, uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, the the Clash kind of is in that upper echelon of of the rock and roll pantheon. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they you know it, it it's too bad how their story kind of falls apart. Um, uh, you know, but for the for that three or four years, well, Joe um, always uh, said, you know, around the mid the beginning of the eighties, the Rolling Stones stopped playing. And for about eight years, there was no Rolling Stones. Right, right, right. Have, They, they broke up with issues. their manager. Yeah, yeah. They had some legal issues to work out. Yeah. Keith made a solo album. Mick made a solo album. But they never broke up. Yeah. No, no. They just, and they Joe just regretted that they hiatus. broke up. Yeah. Joe said, we never should have broke up. We should have just done other things for a little while. And then they could be back together. Like, you know, but once they had made such a point of breaking up, it would have been, it was more difficult to try to bring them back together. Um but I'm I'm one of the fans that you know uh, agrees with the other fans that the Clash were the only band that really mattered. Yeah, the only band that uh, because mattered. they were really saying something, and they were saying it really powerfully. Yeah, every night. Uh, and every and, show they ever played was sold out. Yeah, you can see it in your pictures. Uh, you know, obviously in the recordings uh, uh, and and the the live footage that is available. Uh, you know, these guys had taken it to another level. Uh, well, they made a punk. difference. You know, the Rolling Stones uh, are very entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Clash are also very entertaining, but very meaningful. Mm-hmm. And they set out from the beginning to be meaningful besides just being good. Yeah. Besides just yeah. being entertaining. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, they have like, you know, songs like what are, you know, start off, what are you going to do now? Yeah. You know, yeah. um yeah, there are other artists that fall into that category. You know, obviously Bob yeah. Marley uh, uh, does. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say you know. There's lots of know. bands with a conscience, and, yeah. and certainly, I, I think you were saying we're leading into the fact that Green Day um, has a social and political conscience. Yes, and that they are very entertaining but very meaningful. 
Yeah, so they picked uh, up on the uh, the lessons that uh, somebody like the Clash was was uh, right. was giving uh, 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 twenty years prior. So what what mm-hmm. when you first caught Green Day, which I mm-hmm. believe was on television, did you recognize right. their connection to that New York seventies punk scene? Uh, no. right well, um, in a sense. Um, not necessarily the New York scene, but the punk scene in general, because uh, we had gone to Woodstock Friday night and uh, pitched a tent. And by Saturday afternoon, the place where we had put our tent was turning into the mudslide. And most of the people there were drunk and it was getting to be a pretty obnoxious scene. So we pulled up our tent early Saturday evening. Um, I actually knew about a different show. I took my son and my wife to see the Fugs in Woodstock, <laughs> oh. uh, which was a fantastic. The Fugs are an amazing band. They they inspired all the punk bands, um, and that's a real New York group, the Fugs. So that's who I saw that night. But anyway, we went back home and I saw Green Day the next day on television at home, and they came out on stage. And by that time, from the rain Saturday oh, so night, so the so whole this field. Was new, the '94 Woodstock. Okay, okay. Well, '94 Woodstock. Yeah, yeah. And in the summer of 94, and uh, the field had turned into mud and people started throwing, you know, uh, clods of dirt, you know, clods of dirt and mud at the band. Uh And uh, but not to be intimidated, the band started throwing it back. Right, right, right. Oh, so this. (laughs) And they got into this big mud fight. Okay. And that's uh, what I first saw on television. And uh, I'm like, who are these guys who, you know, get into it? And then I think Trey actually jumped into the audience, into the mosh pit. Ended up not only breaking his arm, but having a lot of trouble getting backstage because he was so covered in mud that he, um, uh, you know, that the, the, the kid didn't recognize him. He didn't have his pass because he jumped right off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> so I started to they like these guys. Back. And right. then I, they, there was some kind of awards show. And there was some large decorative scenery on the side of the stage, like some big flowery looking, you know, 20 foot high thing. And Green Day was on for some reason. And when they finished, um, Trey climbed up in the scenery. And stagehands are seen like urging him to come down and he's saying no. And he starts swinging the thing back and forth. And they were really afraid that A, it could fall on stage and hurt him or fall in the audience and hurt him and other people. And he was just having a ball, and he, and they tried not to show it because it went on for a while. Like other presenters came up, and people got their awards, and the show was going on. And Trey is still in the scenery, swinging around, <laughs> creating this chaos on the side of the stage. So that was my first awareness of him. And then I think we met him in the. I saw Trey uh, in the Sunset Marquee. I think it was the first time I talked to anybody. He was walking around in the bar with a pellet gun trying to shoot drinks out of people's hands <laughs> so my first contact with him was trying to tell them that that was not a good idea <laughs> uh, uh, mr cool excuse uh, me uh yeah <laughs> put the gun down you know? <laughs> <laughs> now <laughs> right. so uh, but then i saw them at don hills they they had a there was a, a concert at madison square garden and there was an after party for it and um and they played there, and I think we might have said hello or something. Uh, but then uh, the first time I really got to know them, my friend Jesse Mallon had a band called Degeneration. And uh, we were out with Jesse one night, and he was saying that they were going to open for Green Day on a tour in Europe, and we should come along uh, from Prague to, uh, no, from, what is it, Bu- Belfast to Prague. 
And that sounded like a long way. So we went from London to Paris, actually. (laughs) Civilized. Um, And actually, after about 12, 14 hours on a tour bus, my wife figured out that that wasn't really the high life. (laughs) So uh, it's not as romantic. We went on the tour with them. They played three shows in London and one in Paris. And that's when I really got to talk to Green Day and got to know them and got to, you know, learn that. They had a hysterical sense of humor, and we got along really well because we had the same kind of sense of humor, and um, and that's when we started, uh, I guess, the relationship. Yeah, and that's still going to this day, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're still in touch uh, yeah. on a pretty regular basis. Yeah. So and uh, and they all contributed comments, and they've all been thrilled uh, along the way. Uh, they never hired me. I never worked for Green Day. And I was never actually on any magazine assignment to take pictures of Green Day. It's always been kind of a practice for me and fun for me because I never had uh, you know, I never had any pressure to turn any pictures into anybody. I was just taking pictures for the fun of doing it and fun of working with a band that I liked a lot, that played great music, that hit the stage running and kept running for the next two and a half, three hours, um, and told jokes, hysterical jokes in between. So, you know... So I was having a good time, but I was never working for them. And then after a number of years, it was like, you know, I'm getting an awful lot of good pictures. Maybe we ought to do something with these. And then uh, more recently, we just said, well, let's get it together for a book. And uh, and so that's what we did. So all the band contributed comments and quotes for the book. Yeah. And uh, and Billy put in a – he sent in a three-page handwritten uh, forward because uh, it was coming down to the deadline and, and – uh, They'd given some quotes, and they was, but you know, they were making an album last winter, which was a little bit more important to them than my book. Although they, they did take my book seriously, um, but trying to get them to take time off, you know, from the record was difficult. And then, you know, I was telling Billy like, we got a week left, we got four days left. Okay, we got two days left, and then he just wrote it down. And uh, the way he sent it is handwritten in pencil on lined paper, like a school notebook paper. So we printed it just the way he wrote it. Because <laughs> it looks very Green Day. And then I, I have to add that uh, Avi Spivak is an illustrator. That yeah, Billy I was going to ask about Avi. And uh, Avi added a, a lot of good feeling uh, by doodling all, all over the book. <laughs> uh, so it comes pre-doodled. <laughs> um, and he just added all kinds of little drawings, really interesting drawings and little stars and little things around the pictures and around the pages just so it's not as formal as the other books because Green Day is not a formal group. <laughs> no, uh, the book actually uh, reflects their personality uh, in a yeah, great way. I think so. Uh, it's fun. It's fun, it's fun uh, to look. Yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting. Uh, it's colorful. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, some pictures you look and wonder what was happening right before the picture or right. happened right <laughs> after the picture uh, uh-huh. and, and things like that. And uh, so it really captures the essence of, of the band. I think uh, you guys uh, did a great job of that. But I, I got to ask about the picture on the cover um, mm-hmm. because it's a recreation of a clash pit. Absolutely. That yes. you took on top of the Chrysler Tower. Uh uh, with Joe Strummer. Not the Chrysler Tower, the RCA building. Uh, it's not the Chrysler Tower, it's the RCA building. The RCA building, Center. Sorry, Rockefeller um, Center. And right, right. I was there when the Clash were uh, taping, I think, the Tom Snyder show in 81. And I knew that that roof was... Uh, I'd actually been up on the roof with the Bay City Rollers years earlier, a couple of years earlier. 
And then uh, when the class were there, I told them, you know, this roof here in New York, this is this building has the best roof in New York. Because uh, some people think if you go on top of the Empire State Building, you get a great picture of New York, but you're missing the main thing that says New York. Which the, is the Empire State, State Building. Building. <laughs> right. um, but if you go up on the Rockefeller Center, it is front and center Empire State Building, and in the background was the World Trade Center, and you just have the whole panorama of New York Island laid out in front of you. So uh, I remember we were in the elevator leaving, and, I, and it was just me and the band, and I said, you know, you should come up to the roof with me. This is the best roof in New York. And Joe turned and said, let's do it. Let's listen to him. He knows what he's talking about. He lives here. And Topper had to take care of some business on the Lower East Side or something. So uh, yeah, he left. missing him, right. And so he's not in the picture, but the other three guys came upstairs and we took the picture. Uh, conveniently, Green Day is only three guys. So yeah, yeah. Didn't so have to matches, leave anybody out or change the, Yeah, we didn't have to change anything. Um, and the only thing that changed is that with the Clash, it was mostly a black and white because that's what people were printing back then. I do have color pictures, but the well-known one is a black and white. And with Green Day, of course, it's digital and it was color. Uh, it took a lot more permissions to get the Green Day picture because they were filming Saturday Night Live which is live and they start rehearsing on Tuesday and by Saturday they've all had a lot of coffee <laughs> and they like people to get there at noon and then you cannot leave the studio because they're ultra paranoid that somebody won't be there when they go live so they won't let anybody out of the building so just to get the permission to go upstairs we had to get the head of security to come along with us to make sure we were just going there and coming back and uh, it was kind of cute because after we came back, the head of security guy, a nice old white-haired man, and he said, you know, this was really exciting for me. He said, I have your picture of the clash on my office in the security office for the last 20 years. And I wow. said, well, why don't you tell me? I would have taken oh, your picture yeah. up there. <laughs> he said, no, no, I like the clash picture. But, so did, uh, uh, did but that, and that's typical for me is that I wasn't working for them. I just showed up. I was there that day for 20 minutes. I just showed up. We went upstairs, came downstairs. It was done. Did they and know? Trey even mentioned it. when I, I brought them the picture a couple of days later, and they had actually had somebody. I think Mike hired a photographer who was with them for months, specifically working on a book, who took so many pictures that he wasn't able to edit it and make a book. Oh. <laughs> um, so his book never happened. But Trey took one look at the picture I took on the roof, and he said, you're just amazing. You show for 10 minutes, and you get the money shot. Right, right. So did they know uh, the Clash pick? Uh, oh, sure. Oh, sure. Beforehand? They're big fans of the Clash. Yeah. They're big fans of the Clash. So, I mean, I, I described it to him. I said, you know the Clash picture? This is the building. Let's go upstairs and do one. And Hell so, yeah. Um, yeah, they were all for it. Wow. Okay. And, and so, I think it makes a great cover, you know. Oh, also, yeah. my connection with Green Day is through New York. I'm, I'm a very New York-centric kind of person, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, here's an interesting thought. Why, why do you think it took so long for the genre known as punk to become legitimized? I mean, you know, Green Day is 80 million record, uh, you know, units sold. Um, you know, none yeah. of those bands... Uh, in the 70s did anything even close to that I, I i'm not even sure well, there was a platinum album out of any of them at the time no no back then no uh barely enough sales to to break even hmm. um i mean the clash you know they played a stadium when they were with the who but on their own they played theaters you know colleges yeah, yeah. um all the bands did 
it's it's it really grew over the years. I don't know exactly what. I mean, as I said, the Sex Pistols and the Gary Oldman movie made a big impact on people. Yeah, uh, that was a big inspiration. You know, when people started recognizing the Sex Pistols in the eighties, and uh, and the power and the force of the music. Because to me, it's just rock and roll sped up. I remember, you know, the the Dolls and so on were often described as you know based on. The same background as the New York Dolls, the, the Rolling Stones. People used to say the Dolls were like the Stones, but actually the Stones and the Dolls both came out of Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and Sonny Boy Williamson. Yeah, the same Chicago roots. roots yeah. Just yeah. speeded up a bit more. Yeah. Um, and then I remember in the 80s when I went to England, people were telling me there's this group, Zig Zig Sputnik, and they're really dangerous and oh, they're really yeah. weird. Yeah, and I went to see them, and it was the same music, just... It, uh, twice as fast. It was like putting on a 33 record, and then the dog put it up to 45, and then these guys were doing Sunday, put it up to 78. You know, so I didn't think it was all that different. And but the fact that punk has become so mainstream, it still surprises me. I mean, I see safety pins on secretaries, you know, and. I remember where it started. You know, yeah. Uh, my granddaughter was wearing blue jeans with rips in them. And I remember that the Ramones didn't do that as a style. They did That's it all they, they had. didn't have money to buy a new pair. Right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And they just said, well, this is my pants and I'm proud of them, so fuck you. You know, it was yeah. that kind of a yeah. statement. Yeah. Not like this is a fashion you should admire. Right. It was right. just right. something they had to live with. And then there's my granddaughter buying ripped pants on purpose. I'm like, no, it's not yeah, right. supposed right. to be like that. Right, you know? right. Anyway, she's uh, very cute in them. So, so uh, who, who should buy this book and why? Um, well, anybody who likes excitement should buy the book because it's exciting. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Certainly Green Day fans because it's got, you know, 25 years of history of Green Day. I actually met them. They'd been together for 10 years already um, by the time I met them in 97. Uh, because, uh, you know, it takes 10, 15 years to yeah, become to, an overnight to, to sensation. It does. It does. People yeah. don't realize that. Yeah. yeah. Um, after three years, they think, oh, we're going nowhere. Let's, I mean, yeah. a lot of bands, after three years, they say, well, we're getting nowhere. Let's break up. No, yeah. you've got to go another 10 years, and then you get a platinum album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. It takes a Don't while you know to learn how, how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. Right. Well, it's all in there uh, in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the book. Uh, you know, it's... Uh, it is a, a coffee table uh, book um, mm -hmm. uh, that should be displayed, uh, and, and as we as we talked about, it but just, not as it, heavy as a, as a doorstop version. No, 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 no. It's it, it's small enough to, to to actually keep on the table. Uh, right. But it's but at the same time, uh, it does really capture the spirit of the band. I, I think that's uh, that's what uh, what I see out there. So I I, I want to ask one last iconic photo before I let you go, mm -hmm. and uh, I want to ask this uh, about. Um, uh, because I, I think it might be the capper of this this whole thing we've been talking about today and rock and mm -hmm. roll and where it sits and the things that we talk about all the time on this show. And that is the shot of Alice Cooper with Salvador Dali. Ah, mm -hmm. again, just a, a, a moment, 60 of a second on a good afternoon. Um, and what I remember, uh, just as far as the photographer's respect, uh, I didn't even know about that until 3 o'clock in the morning. I was on my way home, and I happened to stop by uh, the bar that was owned by the publicist for Alice Cooper. And he said, oh, are you coming to this tomorrow to the Dolly shoot? I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? 
so I said, so I found out and I went and um, it was surreal uh, for me. Uh, one of the strongest memories actually is that the diamonds that Alice is wearing are real. Right. They came from, from Harry Tiffany's Winston. Or, were, or Harry Winston. Uh, right, I think, right. I, well, one or the other. I think it was yeah. maybe Harry Winston. I'm not sure. I should check. Um, but they uh, they were two and a half million dollars in 1973 money. <laughs> and uh, they were delivered by a well-dressed man with a bowler hat and an attache case came with a very pretty girl and a thug with a machine gun guarding them and the guy with the machine gun stayed by the elevator nobody went in or out until the diamonds left <laughs> and the guy with the diamonds went over to the table he opened his case he took out a pillow and handed it to the girl he put the diamond you know the tiara and the necklace on the velvet pillow and the girl brought them over and presented them to Dali who put them on Alice and he said that he wanted to use real diamonds because he wanted it to sparkle in the hologram the whole point of the video, of the shoot was that Dolly was making the world's first moving holograms. And they were a hologram where Alice's mouth would move and look like he was singing. And in his exhibit at the opening, there was actually another one that he made of several guys playing cards where you actually see him moving their hands and, and putting the cards on the table. And, um, and so it was a very experimental thing that he was making the first one that moved, and, but he wanted it to really sparkle, so he got real diamonds. And he's holding what he described as the brain of the pop star, uh, which is in the shape of a brain, but it has a chocolate eclair across the middle of it <laughs> and ants running around the edge. Uh, and Alice says that the ants spelled out Alice. <laughs> um, it was lost sometime as, after the shoot, and Alice has been trying to find it ever since. Yeah, every time he does an interview about this, he says, if anybody sees that skull... <laughs> Uh, that no, that brain, I want those brains. It's his so. brain. He wants it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? right, right. But it was really fun. And then for, at one point, there was like two or three guys. I think there was very limited press, but there was somebody from the New York Times and from Time Magazine or Newsweek, something like that. And Dolly spoke to us at, at one point, and he started talking about the um, art of confusion, confusionism and explaining that there's nothing nobody ever really understands anything that everybody lives in a state of constant confusion and when he saw that i was understanding him <laughs> he started yelling in weird languages you know when they talk about people who speak in tongues it, it wasn't spanish or any kind of language he just started making noise and trying to confuse me <laughs> oh, really because funny. you weren't confused you were like oh right. i get that right. sure, I, makes like, I get it no so no said, you're not supposed to get it that's the you're point you're not supposed to yeah Bob, <laughs> so he that's yelling, yeah, right. <laughs> you know he just started yelling in gibberish it was really kind of weird were um, you confused Yes. It worked. <laughs> it worked. At that point, I didn't know what the fuck he was saying. You know? But yeah. um, but it turned out to be a great picture. Uh, Dolly picked Alice because he said that he felt that Alice's show was a surrealistic show and that he had a similar idea to Dolly, that they were both surrealist artists. And I think that's true because Alice doesn't yeah. just go out on stage and sing a song. He acts them out, and he acts each one out in a very dramatic, theatrical uh, kind of outrageous way. I mean, you know, throwing his wife around the stage when he's singing, you know, only women bleed. Um, and he does some horrible things. He kills a baby, but at the end of the show, he gets killed. He pays right. the price right. for being evil. Right. Right. Uh, there's a whole good and evil thing going on in Alice's show. And so at the end of the show, he either get, he gets hung or he gets his head chopped off. You know, it's, he always gets punished for, for the evil that he projects. 
Well, I can't imagine a, a, a better moment than, uh, you know, the, the king of surrealism uh, with the king of shock rock uh, yeah. coming, coming together. Uh, they seem very comfortable with each other. By yeah. The way. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, they uh, uh, obviously uh, Dali got it uh, and yeah. understood uh, what uh, what this art form uh, was trying to do, and uh, you know wanted to be a part of it uh, himself. And and that that that, that to yeah. me was was uh, you know it's one of those moments. It's like it's like you know now we now now we can call Bob Dylan you know a a, a Nobel laureate uh, and right. and all that. There's there's some forms of legitimacy because let's face it you know this this particular art form uh has been derided through most of its history as juvenile right. uh yeah. and, and 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 you know uh, a lowbrow uh and so on and so forth and and i think you and i would disagree with that and i think most of our fans well, people are disagree. people are afraid of freedom yeah yeah and it is it, it is it is ultimate uh freedom as you said expressed loudly uh, yes. I mean, Jack Nicholson in the Easy Rider movie, he says everybody talks about individual freedom, but show them a free individual and they get scared and that makes them angry. Right, right, right. So what's next on the plate for you, Bob? Uh, well, I'm writing a biography. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. And planning right. and planning some more exhibits. I have an exhibit on right now in the Morris uh, Museum in Morristown, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty extensive. Uh, my first solo museum exhibit in America. And uh, we have other ones coming up. I may have one in Paris in December. We're just negotiating, uh, possibly, uh, certainly several coming up next year. And uh, you know, keep making things. Well, good, good, good. Still, are you out on tour? Do you do that anymore, or do you? Not really. I mean, it's always fun to be with Green Day because they had total respect for me and me for them. Yeah. And it was kind of a mutual admiration society where they gave me all access, and I had no pressure. <laughs> um, but I don't really get hired to go out with bands like that anymore. But on the other hand, I was uh, I was thirty when I was hanging out with the. You know the the Sex Pistols when they were, or I was what not even. I was like, what year was that? Yeah, I was like 32, I think. Uh -huh. um, but at this point, I'm a little older, <laughs> and the idea of like going across America with a bunch of 20 year olds drinking beer is not really what I <laughs> plan to do next week. <laughs> stick stick to the memoir. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, right, you right, know. Right. So I mean, my life is different. You know, I have a great wife, and I have beautiful grandchildren and my son and uh you know it's much better than it was in the 70s and of course new york city yeah yeah new york's always exciting like my wife and i walk around a lot she got me into the idea of walking a lot it's good exercise and we just get to see things and weird people all the time it's just yeah. a, a non-stop show you walk out of the house you don't have to pay a dime you get a free show every <laughs> afternoon <laughs> I live in San Francisco. It's not too far. The same kind from, of thing. <laughs> you don't have to go too far out there no. to find somebody weird. Oh, no, no. Hey, uh, Bob Grant, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Dicks at Rock today. My pleasure.
Another great time. Uh, I'm so glad Bob Gruen was able to join us and discuss his entire career and the new book, Green Day, Photographs by Bob Gruen, uh, which is not just great photos, by the way. Uh, it is authorized and it's filled with commentary from the boys in the band. Uh, go get it and have a ton of fun. So at the top, I, I did mention uh, Green Day's American Idiot as being the last rock and roll album released in 2004, and that's now 15 years since a rock album has topped the charts. It probably will be the last guitar-driven rock and roll album to reach the lofty peak of the Billboard 200. Now, like all things, that is both good and bad. Now, of course, you're wondering what's so good about this. Um, look, rock and roll is not the cultural driver it once was, but it had a great run. Uh, we were talking 50 plus years. Now, for, for a musical form, uh, that is an eternity. And that is why we do what we do and why you come here to listen. Regardless of whether or not it is still significant culturally, what it did do during its viable lifetime was incredible and something we will probably never see again. Uh, there was a moment when music drove the culture, where music defined you, defined your tribe, and together made a difference to the world at large. Uh, one that was, by and large, mostly positive, and hopefully it will be remembered as such. Today's music just doesn't hold up culturally in the same way. It's just too fragmented, and there are too many other markers that drive the culture. Uh, music is everywhere, true, but nothing stands out and nothing is so dominant as rock and roll was for that half century. Now, I, I, I'm no way putting down today's music. There's still plenty of great tunes to find, even great rock and roll for that matter. But I doubt people will be thinking about today's artists as truly rock stars or gods 50 years from now. Oh, the, the kids today will be nostalgic as anyone as they age. It's just that their tribes will be smaller, so not able to garner some of the ways we revisit the past of great moments in history like we're seeing with rock and roll these days. When they get there in the future, uh, the music will be just one of numerous things for them to relive when the nostalgia bug kicks in. Especially if the artists today are going to let their managers kick out uh, the Bob Gruens uh, who uh, you know, are there to capture the sublime moments uh, as they happen in real time, which is usually after the first three songs. Okay, next week, we're going to dig into something new, uh, fertile ground, I might add. Our guest will be young journalist Taylor Markarian discussing her first book, From the Basement, A History of Emo Music and How It Changed Society. I must say, Taylor makes a great case that emo rock and roll from the first decade of the 21st century should be considered canon to the overall rock and roll story as much as any other decade or genre. And after reading the book and talking with her, I'm beginning to agree with her assessment. She makes a powerful argument, as you will hear and see, or hear and read, excuse me. <laughs> Come on back for that one. Okay, my work here is done for the week. As always, keep up the rockin'.
Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Kristen Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at The RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. <laughs>